it is malpractice to continue with the curriculum that you know is not working. What to do when the curriculum doesn't work. A few years ago, a meme kept popping up on social media. It said, asking a teacher to use a boxed curriculum is like forcing a chef to use hamburger helper. Although some of us might remember and possibly still enjoy hamburger helper, the meme actually touches on an issue that teachers face regularly when the curriculum asks the questions. How do you maintain autonomy and creativity while using materials that are aligned for academic standards? How do you include challenging activities and content for students? What do you do when the curriculum doesn't work? The meme suggests that aligned instruction and teachers' access to high-quality curriculum is an either-or situation, but of course the reality is actually much more complicated than that. This is Teaching Today. This podcast is brought to you by the Center for the Professional Education of Teachers at Teachers College, Columbia University. In conversation with teachers, researchers, and school leaders, we're dedicated to breaking down the problems, policies, and promising practices that define teaching today. Uniting theory and practice, CPET promotes rigorous and relevant scholarship and is committed to making excellent education accessible worldwide through personalized professional development. Hi, Cherise. Happy co-hosting. Hello, Roberta. How are you, my dear co-host? I'm doing well. I have the air conditioner turned off in my in in my in my studio, <laughs> my bedroom, uh, while we're still here under mostly, <laughs> uh, you know, trying to keep it keep it safe. Uh, so I will begin sweating sometime later. But it's a podcast, so nobody will see me. Absolutely, absolutely. And I, I'm enclosed in my um, state of the art um, theater for my state of the artist, 20%. Oh yeah. <laughs> Let's meet the panel. I'm Roberta Langer-Kang, the co-host and director of the Center for Professional Education of Teachers, and I'm Sharice Holloman, co-host for the podcast. We're here today with our panelist, Courtney Brown, Senior Professional Development Advisor and NTN at TC Initiative Leader, Secondary Education Specialist. Hi, Courtney. Hey, everybody. Glad to be here. We're also here with G. Faith Little, our Senior Program Manager for Special Projects, Global Partnerships, and 21st Century Learning Specialist. Hi, G. Hi, Roberta. Hi, Cherise. We're joined today with our special guest, Dr. Monica White, Senior Director at the New York City Department of Education Office of Innovation. She'll be joining us later for the interview. Let's start the panel. This is episode three of our five-part curriculum series. Our previous podcast focused on whether we should design our own or purchase a curriculum. Last week, we discussed culturally relevant and sustaining curriculum. And this podcast is centered around the question, what to do when the curriculum doesn't work? Let's begin by unpacking this question. So panelists, what do we mean when we say the curriculum doesn't work? I feel like sometimes we think it's as simple as, oh, standardized test scores, right? The student scores are dropping or they're not meeting proficiency or they've gotten lower in general. Uh, or maybe we have other assessment evidence. Oh, it's clear that at the end of the year, the students are not able to do X, Y, Z skills. But I'd like to know if those are really the questions that, that we should be using to measure whether or not curriculum is working. And I'm thinking a little bit, and I don't know about you guys, but 
are the students engaged, right? Are they asking questions? Um, what are some other ways that we... Well, the first thing, Courtney, that I thought of um, that popped into my brain when Sharice asked that question about what do we mean when we say the curriculum doesn't work, I thought of the teacher. And I thought, well, I want to ask a teacher, does it work? It doesn't work? What, what is it about it that it doesn't work? And how are you, how do you know that? How do you feel that? And I imagine things like their experience in the classroom. You know, I, I, I think about things uh, since, you know, we go in for to do professional development. I think about like walking in and seeing some sort of curriculum on the side, not being used, not being implemented or when we're discussing curriculum, yeah, we had something, but uh, you know, I just couldn't figure out how to make it work in my classroom. I think a lot of times when we talk about what, what it, this curriculum doesn't work is either in that the design itself is not coherent. So, so lesson one doesn't necessarily build to lesson two, to lesson three, to lesson four, or the lessons themselves are connected, but the assessment is disconnected. I remember doing a curriculum review a couple of years ago on a, you know, kind of a, a curriculum that was a free curriculum that was publicly available on a state website. And it was a, it was an English curriculum and all of the lessons were about close reading and write and responding to to questions and close reading on texts. And then the assessment was a pretty extensive writing project. And the thing for me that was a huge disconnect was that there was no writing instruction anywhere in the unit. And I felt like that was a huge disconnect that that kind of made it so that the curriculum wasn't gonna work, that the, the assessment was not actually assessing what was taught. And the thing that was expected on the assessment was not taught. And so I feel like disconnects within the curriculum as it's been drafted can be a huge challenge for a teacher who's looking at this saying, this is what I'm supposed to teach. This is, they know, they know curriculum, whoever I got this from, you know, they're the expert. What do I know? But it kind of sets their students up to fail because the, the curriculum itself actually was not well designed. When you say disconnect, it seems like sometimes that's hidden or hard to see. So it feels like I taught the, all of this. I did everything that it said to do and still they don't have the skills at the end that I thought they would have. I think that's right, Faith, because I don't know that it doesn't work until I do it, right? <laughs> it's only, it, it's, it's only, it's sort of like when you're building like furniture from Ikea, like I'm going and I'm going and I'm going and then I go to put that last piece on and it doesn't fit or I'm like, I'm finished and I still have 15 parts on the ground. Now, some people might think that that is a reflection of my engineering skills. They are probably correct, <laughs> however, my, my point is that sometimes you don't know that it doesn't work or it doesn't fit until you're almost done. When I put together IKEA furniture, I think this doesn't seem to be right. I'm not sure if this is really it, but I trust the instructions and I say, I don't know how to put together furniture. I'm not a curriculum writer, so I'm going to keep following it. And exactly as you say, not until the end do I go, something here isn't working and not until I interrogate what is not working, can I really figure out why it doesn't work? 
And that could be something that I misread, right? Or it could be unclear instructions or, you know, knowledge that they assumed that I had that I didn't really have. You know, there are lots of reasons. I'm not, you know, there are lots of reasons that that breakdown can happen. But I think that the point we're agreeing on is that it's not until it's too late. Right. And I, and I also wonder, too, at times, how much responsibility can we place on the curriculum alone? You know, too often in education, we are thought of as the sort of cure-all. Any kind of societal ill, ill, schools can cure it, the curriculum can cure it, but I don't think the curriculum was meant to ever stand alone and totally on its own. Sharice, I think that's an amazing point. And I think all of us here have talked about this at some point or other, especially as PD professional development, instructional and curricular advisors, we often have people come to us and say, help, it's the curriculum, things aren't going well, please, we need to buy a new one or we need to fully create a new one, forgetting that there's so many components that go into making that curriculum work. And, and one of those is instruction, right? How's the instruction and how is that matching up and supporting the curriculum? I also think that that brings up for me, Courtney, it brings up two concepts. One is that sometimes the curriculum doesn't work and I did write it, right? And that like what I wrote or what I put together, or what my, my team put together, we start implementing it and realizing it, it, it's not landing. And it's almost always not landing because it's not connecting with our kids. And I, and I feel like this builds on conversations that we've had in the past about how we're not teaching a content necessarily, but we're teaching our kids. And the curriculum can, I think can and should be a living document that is adapting each year to meet the needs of the students that I have in front of me. So when I hold to something so rigidly that maybe I care about, but my kids don't, then there's gonna be a gap and it's gonna kind of fall flat. Similarly, pre-designed or pre-packaged curriculum, or as we talked about in the introduction, boxed curriculum that kind of has everything you need in it, they have to design that curriculum for an ideal student in an ideal classroom. The classroom that the, the professional curriculum writer has to do is they have to imagine the, the conditions of an ideal class where every student comes every day, where every student shows up at the beginning of the year on grade level in literacy and reading and writing and math or whatever the topic is, and where every student uh, is completes every assignment and that their skills build at the same rate across this across the school year and when all of those conditions are met that curriculum might work just fine but i've never seen a classroom that does that we always have diversity in our classrooms we always have you know different kinds of challenges in different kinds of spaces and so the question is what role does the teacher have then in how you know, do I have the freedom to manage or manipulate the curriculum if I'm using a store-bought curriculum? And do I have the guts or the courage to modify a curriculum that maybe I love, that I wrote, if I realize that it's not really meeting the needs of my students? And you know, Courtney, you brought up a point a few minutes, a moments ago talking about instruction. And so when I think about this relationship between the curriculum and instruction, I think they're actually inseparable. I don't think we can really look at one without looking at the other, you know, because sometimes we're going back to the analogy Roberta used about IKEA. So is it the instructions or is it the user, you know, and sometimes we don't want to 
necessarily take on that responsibility, but realizing that, that there are ways in which it, the curriculum can be adapted to meet the needs both of the teacher as well as of, of the students in front of her. Sharice, I just wanted to say that I think in that reflection, that part of what we're probably asking ourselves, or maybe should be if we're not, is how do I know? So from my perspective as a teacher, if I'm reflecting on, okay, what happened and how did it go? And was there a piece of the curriculum? We, we were talking about a tractor, but I just realized like some of these kids are from an area that doesn't make any sense, right? And if they're looking for that, then I think a, a key ingredient or question is around whose voices are in the curriculum. And then that it, it really, to me, the voice part is overall who chose the curriculum, who are the stakeholders in choosing curriculum for a class, for a school? Are their voices all heard? Whose voices are not heard? That's very difficult because we think, yes, we've asked everybody. We sent out a survey. We had meetings with parents. We, we um, you know, went down the list of stakeholders, but even going further to reflect on um, whose voice might we not be hearing because we haven't seen them yet. Um, and so in choosing it, and then also within the curriculum, our students, uh, we talked about this on a previous podcast, are students seeing themselves in, in the curriculum? Are they seeing people other than themselves or that are different than they are in the curriculum, which are both important voices to hear? One of the things that really comes to mind for me is just that it's relevant and that it is meeting the needs of the students and the learners. So, you know, I, I come from uh, North Carolina and, you know, some of the things that like even I remember when I took my driving test, they had questions up there about the speed that a tractor could go and can you pass the tractor? So, you know, people in North Carolina, we get that. We understand that. But if you took that somewhere else, they'd be like a tractor. So I think making sure that the 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 curriculum content is just culturally relevant. It's is a huge part of one of those ingredients that makes the curriculum work. And Sharice, I'd just like to build on that because it seems so important that in order to have a curriculum that is relevant, it needs to be adaptable. It needs to be a curriculum that's adaptable for our needs so that we can take a look at it and say, hey, I really like a lot of the elements of this. I'm not just going to scrap it, but I'm going to trade some things, I'm gonna change a few things here or there and still remain somewhat true to following that curriculum because then it's gonna be relevant to my students. My students this year, maybe my student demographics or situation next year is gonna change. So I think that it's adaptive and that we can look at it and kind of take it apart and then replace and move around pieces that we need to is a really key ingredient of a curriculum that's going to be useful. And I think what we've been saying, and we haven't used this term explicitly, is the, the need for reflection and the need for constant reflection as we're teaching, because it may very well be that this is a curriculum that we taught last year and it worked just fine. But if we're constantly reflecting on what's working and what's not working, I think that's a huge component to understanding what's working and what's not. Part of being able to do that, Courtney, is feeling is feeling empowered as the educator 
to make those curricular choices in the room. So sort of who's, who's in charge of the curriculum? Is the curriculum in charge of my class or is the teacher in charge of the curriculum? And I think so often when we're using prepackaged materials, the mindset is, and this is true, that not every teacher who is in the job is able to design you know, a fully fledged and, and, and highly well-developed curriculum map. And so, you know, point taken, like people do it for a living because it's really, really hard and complex, but also those designers aren't in our classroom. And so where's the give and take, right? What are the essential things that need to happen and what makes the curriculum the curriculum and what is style or what is suggestion? And, and I feel like these are really individual teacher decisions, but they're also school-based decisions. So what is the message that I received from my principal or my assistant principal or my department chair about how much freedom or autonomy I have to, to use? And sometimes these decisions come from a superintendent who says, this is the curriculum you need to use and I want to see you know everybody doing the same thing on the same day we could be critical of that but there are also some really key reasons for for some of those policies to come in place I remember Courtney years ago we were working on Rikers Island with the school with the high school on Rikers Island and they were struggling to implement a curriculum that was consistent with what many other city schools were doing and I felt very concerned about that it didn't seem to make a lot of sense to me but when I realized that the, that the driving purpose of that decision was because so many kids rotate back and forth between school and the jail and then back home and then sometimes going back, that for them to have, to, to try to um, approximate or aspire to as seamless an educational experience as possible, like, aha, I totally understood well, I didn't, well, I still maybe didn't love the curriculum that, that had been selected. I understood that the motivation was coming from a place that was really in the student's best interest. That's right. And we worked really hard, Roberta, like so many schools do, to work as a team, to collaborate, to figure out what really will work for our students. What, how can we remain true in some ways or as much as possible to this curriculum, and then what do we need to do? Some deep, deep adaptations, as you're alluding to at Rikers, but to make it work for our students. And then another issue is that if students are gonna move from year to year, i.e. ninth grade through 12th, or as in Rikers, classroom to classroom, sometimes the students are moved around, they need something that's a little bit consistent and predictable, or that follows at least sequentially and logically what came before. So for me, that's another reason and potentially an ingredient in curriculum that it is, it's well sequenced or that there's a scope that makes sense and that we can use. In our thinking about some of the factors that would make a curriculum work or not work in a very, very particular setting like a high school on Rikers Island or in a highly regulated space, it makes me wonder about other factors, either internal or external factors that can impact the implementation of a curriculum. So that was a very, that's a very extreme example, right? Of sort of like education and the criminal justice system. Um, but what are, but is, that's not the only space where there are internal and external factors. Well, Roberta, what comes to mind for me was some work that you and I did a few months ago with a school in New York City as they were trying to select their curriculum. And one of the first things that they did was actually examine their mission, their vision, their values. 
to then align a curriculum which spoke to those particular values for them. And one of the things that was surprising in the, the bevy of curriculum materials and resources that we brought to them was their conclusion that these options and models are good, but for it to work for our students, we will need to modify it and make it our own. So I think that one of the internal things that can impact it is how much pre-work is done on the part of the teachers and the school, because there's, there's a whole bunch of curriculum out there for you, but then which one works for you? And if not this one, then why that one? And then what does it need to make it just a little bit better? You know, it's, it's unfortunate, you know, if you go out and you buy a dress, great, maybe you're that perfect size six, perfect size eight. But if you go to the tailor and you get it tailored to everything about you, you get the perfect fit. In the absence of getting that perfect fit, I think doing some of that pre-work around those mission, those vision, those values, I think you can get as close of a good fit as perfect, as possible rather. And Sharice, I'd just like to add that I, I love this idea of tailoring and that image tailoring the curriculum to the values and the mission of the school, which sometimes, and you guys did this, really needs to be explored, right? And made explicit so that you can figure out whether or not the curriculum does kind of meet your needs. I'm also thinking about demographics and cultural relevancy here and that oftentimes we can kind of paint that with a broad brush, so to speak, and say, oh, I have uh, kids of color in the South Bronx and sort of make some assumptions about, I'm gonna pick a lot of um, African-American literature in most of my texts. However, when you dig a little deeper, you might find out, and there's a school in the South Bronx where I happen to do some work, that 30% of the kids are recent immigrants from Africa. And then you dig a little deeper and you figure out, oh, students actually come from a few countries and have some things in common. So. When you start to dig more deeply into what cultural relevancy means, at least in some ways, you can find that it's really more complex than we think. And how can we both strategically address that uh, and make it shine, as Faith was saying, bring those voices forward as well as others' voices in our curriculum. I'd like to shine the spotlight. Curriculum is complicated. Whether it's working or not working for you, CPET's team of professional development coaches provide customized professional development in person and online to support curriculum analysis, adoption, and implementation. Check out more of our services at tc.edu forward slash CPET. Now let's move on to the interview. Dr. Monica White has spent the better part of her career working with school improvement, curriculum, and redesign efforts. Her passion and commitment to equity in education is fueled by her personal education journey, her early career as a Louisiana certified high school teacher in the disciplines of both English and mathematics, and her experiences advocating for her own children. She is currently a senior director of special projects in the New York City Department of Education Innovation Zone known as the iZone. In this role, she supports ed tech implementation and teacher professional development. As the founder of Grand Pearl Communications, she provides writing services to individuals, organizations, and businesses. 
She earned her doctorate in curriculum and teaching from Teachers College, Columbia University. Monica, welcome to Teaching Today. Thank you for joining this discussion. Thank you for having me, Sharice. I, I think we'll just get started with just asking, you know, from your experience, you know, we've been having this conversation about what to do when the curriculum doesn't work. What kind of advice do you offer to teachers or schools when they say to you that the curriculum doesn't work? Right, thank you, Sharice. Um, every time I hear that question, I can't ignore like this gut feeling that I have just to say, well, if it doesn't work, don't use it, right? But just like we would do with anything <laughs> that does not work. But I think what that speaks to why people ask that question, um, and Roberta referred to this earlier, is about making sure that teachers understand that they are empowered to make changes and we're living in an era in education where teachers are disempowered. Either they're disempowered or they feel as though they are disempowered. And yet making changes to the curriculum to meet the needs of their students is in some almost the totality of their job, right? So it's interesting to me that you know, a teacher would show up day to day with a curriculum that's not working, even with the most unagreeable, if you will, of supervisors. But then I also come from the position of do the right thing, not, not do the thing right, right? And so sometimes we just, I always say, and I used to, I worked for District 79, and Courtney, I'm realizing now that that's where we might know each other from because I also did some work with um, Student Press Initiative. But um, in District 79, at the time, the superintendent was, and this was before Danielson was adopted citywide in the, in the Department of Ed. But the superintendent of District 79 was coming up with her own teaching standards informed by several different models that were out there. And I and my team were responsible for drafting it, et cetera. And it was beautiful. <laughs> we had all of the, you know, appendices, supports, professional development, et cetera. And what I realized is that with these standards, whatever they may be, you could get a passing teacher evaluation with no students in the room. Right, because the teaching standards were about the performance of the teacher. Right, and so, but when you consider the question of is the curriculum working or not, then that changes the whole, you know, ball of wax. That's a gross example, but you know what I mean. I don't know what else to say. That changes the whole ball game. That's a better one. So, with that being said, whether your curriculum is coming from a box on a shelf or another teacher that has told you that this works for her or him, when, once you get it, there are some things that you need to consider. One, who you are, right? A lot of times, and this is where I think people 
missed the mark on culturally relevant or culturally sustaining um, curriculum. They don't consider who they are and accept where they are and not try to be someone else. And so then you have teachers trying to perform or be someone in the name of being culturally relevant as opposed to how can I make this curriculum be relevant for my students who are very different from me and acknowledging that we are very different. And part of that might be like Courtney said earlier is listening to the voice of her students. And that reminded me, I was a high school English teacher in a testing grade. And at this time it was popular um, in the community to say throwed as the past tense of throw. So-and-so was thrown off. And so I'm chatting, you know, with my students, it's informal, and they kept saying that. And I said, you do know it's thrown. They said, yeah, we know Miss White. And I, I said, okay, I'm cool. Let's, you know, continue. And then the student stopped and said, what's wrong with the way that we speak? And I said, nothing is wrong with it. That's why we're sitting here having this conversation. But as your high school English teacher that's responsible for making sure that one, you'll be able to pass these assessments, two, you'll be able to take that knowledge and use it in a world beyond your um, circle, I need to make sure that you know. Um, and so that was a conversation about code switching. I said, but please know when I raise this, that I'm not saying that there's, you know, something wrong with your language, because I, you know, do that with my friends. My son just said to me, maybe a few months ago after we went home to New Orleans for a visit while we were down there, he said, Mom, why are you using this fake accent? And I'm like, boy, this is not, this is how I speak. But he saw it as a fake accent because that's, you know, you fall into something when you're around people that you're comfortable with, right? And so, yeah, so you have to, I would say to teachers or schools, it is a disservice to continue with the curriculum that doesn't work. It's even worse than a disservice. I have a, a girlfriend, she would always say, it's criminal. It's just criminal to everything. But it's almost like a, what do we call it with doctors? It's a form of malpractice. It is malpractice to continue with the curriculum that you know is not working. And you know it's not working before you get to the end because there's all of these indicators. It could be disruptions in class, you know, if students are not engaged and they're not um, connecting, when you yourself as the educator aren't able to, you know, troubleshoot on the fly to make something have a, a smaller gap or not as big a gap between ideas and the implementation or application rather um, for students, then you know that there's, you don't even understand it well enough. And so I would say that to me, that's the core, it's the core role of the teacher to be able to modify and adapt um, the curriculum. And Roberta, I was so happy that you used the hamburger helper example, because 
my mother did not use hamburger helper and i thought it was an injustice like everybody else <laughs> hamburger helper and the you know the commercial was really cool but i never as a kid had hamburger helper i don't even think i had it as an adult but my point being with some of these other um if i were using hamburger helper with the kind of cook that I say that I am today, you wouldn't know it was Hamburger Helper by the end of it, right? So it's kind of like, it gives me a solid base uh, from which to start from. I might add chopped broccoli in it because now I'm trying to be a little bit more helpful. Um, if it calls for a certain amount of butter, I might pull back a little bit or use olive oil instead or something like that because I'm taking into account the, the audience. I think that that's exactly what, you know, is called for in the classroom. As you said, the curriculum, box curriculum, and even those that are teacher made, they're teacher made with a particular group of students sitting in front of them, right? And then once you transfer it to a different set of students, maybe even a different time, even what's going on now, the students that had um, difficulty in a physical classroom space, some of them are doing really well in the remote space. And even vice versa, some students that were doing really well in the physical space are really struggling now. But it's, you cannot continue to do. Once you change any component, then you have to change something about the curriculum. We have been in a time of remote learning almost around the world. And very quickly, schools had to completely change all of their methodology. Now we're in the summer and we've had some time and space to breathe. The future is still unknown. And many teachers are beginning to think about how do I prepare for the fall? From your perspective, and you're in a unique situation, having being located in the Office of Innovation, and I know that you know working with innovative solutions and technology and, and really thinking about what does it mean to be 21st century learners uh, in New York City. What are your thoughts on the role of technology in education in general and in particular right now? How, how can technology help us and how can it help hurt us in terms of the curriculum? Technology is a tool it is often used, particularly now in remote learning as a portal. So it's something that allows you to gain access. Also in that portal, it allows you to um, store things. So it still, to me, goes back to the teacher and the choices that she or he makes. Because some people are delivering the same teacher-directed instruction via the online tool, right? And so some of the work that, you know, we're, and not just doing now, have been um, in the past in the Office of Innovation is understanding that the technology in and of itself is not the innovation, it's the tool to help you with an innovation that you have. So something that may be difficult, admittedly, or 
like you said, Roberta, with regard to editing recordings, it's the difference between, say, six and three hours. So you could differentiate the curriculum in your physical classroom without technology, and teachers have been doing it for years. But the technology offers some things that hopefully will make that easier for you. So one would be real-time data and feedback on how students are doing. Another would be the, the ease in which you can modify different assignments to different students. You don't even have space limitations. So in a classroom, you might not send a student to the bookshelf to look up something or to come to the board because you just want to just maintain that control. You can't do it all. But in an uh, online remote environment, you have the tools now to provide different rooms for small grouping activities. You have um, shared working spaces where students, not just across the same class, you could go anywhere in the world actually and um, collaborate on different um, projects. I really enjoy more of an inquiry-based or project-based learning classroom environment. So to me, the online or remote space, or maybe even better, the blended learning space is the ideal setup for that because while in the physical classroom, I may not be able to allow students to go downtown to interview someone with the technology, they have the access to be able to do that in the corner of a room if we're in the physical classroom um, setting. And now that we're all in a remote setting, you can have a small group of students know that their task for this week is to come up with the interview questions, get them reviewed by their teacher, get some feedback, practice, and have the interview on Thursday and have some notes to deliver, you know, on Friday. Technology allows us, I think, to be, and I said this last week to one of my colleagues, to be more accurate, more effective, and more efficient. So saving time, making sure that things are correct, because now the world is changing so quickly, right? So if we're using boxed or printed curriculum, some of the things that we're teaching are just not even accurate any longer. And an effective gets at those modifications that you make using the technology to make sure that you reach the students that you know that you have in your classroom. So Monica, I just, I really love hearing from you. Thanks for all these insights. I think what keeps on coming up for all of us is the notion that we need to be empowered stakeholders in the curriculum and adapt and modify and change it as needed and listen to the voices telling us that it might not be working, right? So how do we do that? What is the role of professional development in this curriculum work? I know you're an expert in this area. So before I answer the latter part directly, let me just say that as much as I say it is the teacher's job to make these modifications, it is very difficult to ask someone who is 
you know, quite bluntly needs their job, <laughs> is being evaluated on a certain scale criteria, et cetera, to say, you know what, there are those radicals out there that, you know, will do it and just say, you know, by the time you catch up with me, my students will have performed well and you won't even care that I changed your curriculum. But everybody is not there yet, right? So, and this gets at my dissertation work. I place a lot on the school leader, right? So the leader of the school, the principal, should set the tone that what students need and how they need it is paramount. And I respect you as professionals. And if you need some assistance in making those modifications, these are the resources and the opportunities that we have in this school building to enable you to be able to do that. And I think when principals take that risk, then they can do the political accountability work with supervisors to say, these are the modifications that our school has made to the curriculum because we reviewed and surveyed and this and that and the other. And no superintendent, I don't think, is going to disagree with that because you're making the case in the need for the student. So now with that having been said, the role that professional development plays in this, when I think about my own teaching experience, let me share this story really quickly. So I had the unique experience of my first year of teaching. I had sixth grade students in a middle school. And quite honestly, I hated it. I had, a, and I didn't hate the kids, but I hated teaching at that level because I had just gotten out of college taking English um, teaching methods. And what I had to teach in sixth grade English did not fit in that way. Like my methods class was more about exposition and literature. And, you know, I'm dealing with a student and a um, ELA textbook where the first chapter is what is a noun. I really don't know what to say beyond a person, place, or thing. And I wouldn't dare bring in the, uh, the concept or that it could be an abstract idea or concept. And so it's like, okay, these are 12-year-olds. I don't know how to break that down even further. So then my second year of teaching, I taught 12th grade. I went to the opposite extreme and I absolutely loved it. But somewhere along my career, I ended back at the 10th grade level. And my students in that 10th grade level were the students that I taught at sixth grade. And, you know, I recognized some of them. Some of them came up to me or whatever. And so I go to write the journal topic on the board. And the student says, you still doing journal topics, Miss White? And it was like so embarrassing that after all this time, I'm thinking I'm Miss It, you know, English teacher, that this 16, 15 year old boy comes and he just shuts me down. Like I had this already with you in sixth grade. My point in sharing that story in terms of professional development, in my defense, I like to think that my journal topics were much more comprehensive or complex. I related them more to what was going to be 
taught so they weren't just a place to share your emotions or whatever. I didn't just get them out of a book as I did when I was teaching sixth grade, like, you know, 150 journal topics to start the year, you know, off with or whatever. And probably something that I learned through a professional development, but it takes experience to fine tune. Unfortunately, we don't have the gift of time, right? So while I was fine tuning things, by the time I saw this kid again that said that to me, I almost felt like I needed to apologize to those kids for what I had quote unquote done to them while they were in sixth grade. And so then that makes professional development critical. And because it's critical, we have to look at the ways in which professional development is delivered. Too often, professional developments are meetings, are trainings about something new, right? But if we just break down the term, how do we continue to develop or grow as professionals? It will open the, the world to a whole new possibility of what we can do. So just like if we take it from um, a classroom perspective, we could do it in the physical classroom. We could have, you know, field trips as we could have walkthroughs or shadowing opportunities, book clubs, reading groups. There's so much that can be done for professional development so that you're not just stuck with going to quote unquote PD. It got to a while that PD just almost sounded vulgar to me. Like I just stopped even saying PD. Like I forced myself to say, you know, professional development because I feel like it get lo it gets lost in um, policy conversations. Case in point, a few years ago in New York City, the department took away the time allotted for professional development. And when I showed up at the school, they were like, oh, you're coming this year? And I said, yes. They said, oh, we don't have PD this year. You don't have that 37 minutes or whatever crazy number it was. It was like 37 and a half minutes or something like that. You don't have that 37 and a half minutes allotted on a Monday any longer, but you still should continue to develop as a professional. So we may do some lunchtime conversations if it's you know okay with the union or whatever the case may be, or do some book studies, or I can come into your classroom and do some note taking for you and then we could debrief later. So yeah, professional development is needed. But we also need to look at the kinds of professional development that we are doing to make sure that it actually achieves the We need to make sure that it's working, just like we need to make sure that the curriculum is working. <laughs> Thank you. Thank you, Dr. White. Thank you. That point is very well taken. Thank you. And, and as we move to our now what? Well, we like to think about what's the smallest thing we can do to make the biggest difference. The question to our panel is, what is a strategy a teacher or school can employ to make their curriculum work? I think I'm just gonna steal one from you, Monica. I wrote down your questions about asking ourselves, who am I 
and then accepting who I am and then being who I am. And it made me think about critical reflection, always come back around to that, but this idea that even the professional development, if I'm thinking about my own development as a professional educator, as a teacher in a classroom, as a teacher in a distance learning classroom, imagine if the professional development was asking that question. So who am I? And making a plan maybe, or an action plan on accepting who I am and then being who I am in the classroom. Gee, I, I think critical reflection is really key. The one, the smallest thing that I think a teacher or a school could do to make sure that their curriculum is working is to read it before you teach it. And I think so often, especially when we're using pre-packaged or purchased curriculum, we have such faith that it's going to be good. We have such faith that it's going to make sense. We have such you know, confidence in ourselves as educators and, and a confidence that we put or a trust that we put into the curriculum that sometimes it's easy to think that I can show up on the morning of the lesson and open up the book and just kind of read from it and, and, and pass out the papers. And so often meaningful curriculum or making curriculum work, it really does require that internalization and, and adaptation to my own class. And so that means that I have to do the hard work of reading through it and really understanding it, visualizing it and imagining what is it that I'm gonna do and also filling in the gaps. Uh, what is not said or not prescribed are decisions that I get to make. And if I don't read it ahead of time, I may be speaking from experience here. If I don't read through it ahead of time, similar to if I don't read through all of the instructions for my you know, IKEA furniture, I am likely to get into the situation where I'm in front of my kids and I don't actually have all the tools or resources in front of me to get the job done. Thanks for that, Roberta. I think I would add the, the, the one thing that a school or teacher could do is just think about your students. Oftentimes, I think the people who design curriculum are designing curriculum for teachers and they're not necessarily designing curriculum for the students. So think about your students and then let that be the driver in the, the curriculum choices that are made. I'm just gonna echo what Cherise said about thinking about your students and taking the time, as Roberta said, to actually review and look at the curriculum and reflect on it as they said. So taking that time. And I'm just going to hold with me after this the notion that you're not teaching the curriculum, you're teaching the students. And if we can just keep that adage in mind, and I'm gonna steal it, thanks. I think it was Roberta. Yeah, Courtney, that is um, really important to keep in mind. I had a superintendent that one time said, if the students aren't learning, then you're not teaching. And as hard as that was to swallow because of the late nights, <laughs> and all of the preparation that you did and how hard you were working in the classroom. If the audience is not getting it, then you're not, you're just talking, <laughs> right? Um, so his point was to, if they're not learning, you need to stop and pull back. But the um, one strategy that I would say to um, teachers or schools to employ to make the curriculum work is to begin to see the curriculum in the natural world. And what I mean by that is, um, you know, sometimes just on the commute in, whether it's through like that free AM newspaper 
or sometimes there are even subway ads because ads are getting more and more sophisticated now. Um, one of my favorite years ago, I tore out in the, um, um, tore out of a magazine. It was a Hershey Kiss ad that had the almond plus the chocolate divided by something and then it ended up with the wrapped Hershey um, Kiss. And so just to um, show that Hershey, Hershey Kiss as a mathematical equation and ask students what they think this is saying will help them with you know, say word problems or being able to visualize. Unfortunately, we can learn a lot from, you know, natural disasters across the curriculum and not just natural disasters, but natural successes too. So even now during our quarantine with COVID, there are lots of different stories about how nature is just responding differently. And so what that means to the impact of humans on the world, there are things that we could write about that. There are things that you could demonstrate mathematically um, about it, not to mention science, history, social studies, like the possibilities are endless. But that requires someone to truly know their discipline and be able to understand it in such a way that on a simple you know, walk around the park, you begin to see clues of how you can use these things um, within your curriculum. And I think that makes it more fun too, because it lifts the curriculum out of the book or off the screen if you're doing it um, virtually. If it doesn't work, don't use it. Meeting the needs of our students is the totality of our role as educators, says Dr. Monica White. To do so, we must know our students, know our content, and know ourselves. This is Teaching Today. I'm Roberta Langer-Kang. And I'm Sharice Holloman. We want to say another thank you to our panelists, Courtney Brown. Thanks for being Sharice. Deep Faith Little. Thank you. And to our very special guest, Dr. Monica White. Thank you, Sharice. This was fun to be here. I'm definitely going to be tuned in to you guys. We think your voice matters. Send us your education questions, concerns, and promising practices, and we'll address them. Like and subscribe to the podcast, and follow us on Twitter, where you can find us at TCCPED, or send an email to cpet at tc.edu. We'll be back in your feed next week with a focus on promising practices for designing authentic curriculum with special guest, Dr. Jacqueline Simmons, Vice Chair of the Department of Curriculum and Teaching at Teachers College, Columbia University. Sharice, until then, take, take care, care and we'll see you next time. <laughs>